Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Good day to all of you. Today I'm going to share a one-off message from the Gospel of John, and especially John chapter 11. You know that much of my life is spent studying and preparing presentations, and since I can do a few of those well, or many of them poorly, sometimes I try to get double duty out of them. I have the joy of preaching once a month at the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville, and that's why I sometimes convert the sermon that I preach there into a podcast, and that's what I've done today. So next week, we'll continue on with our series on the subject, Living on the Precipice of Prophecy. But this week, my message for this podcast is, What Happens When You Believe in Jesus? We'll get to that in just a moment, but first I want to remind you that my book, The 50 Final Events in World History, is now available for pre-order. Pre-ordering is so important today in the book market, and I feel like this is a very important book that people will appreciate once they get it, and so perhaps you will enjoy pre-ordering it. If you go to robertjmorgan.com, there is a link there to different places where you can order it, along with some different uh, special uh, promotional uh, resources that you can get as you do so. So you can go to any of your book distributors and order it now, the 50 final events in world history. It will be out in early April, and every pre-order helps launch the book more successfully. This is a study of the book of Revelation, and I think that you will find it very helpful, and I hope really that many small groups and, and churches will study it together, because we've got to understand this final book of the Bible and these days in which we live now. There is war going on everywhere, and especially our attention <clears throat> is, is uh, focused on Ukraine. I've tried to imagine what it would be like if I were serving right now as a, as a pastor in a local church somewhere in Ukraine. What would it be like to be a wartime pastor? Well, I can't really imagine it, but I did read about one pastor whose church is 145 miles south of Kiev. He said that when they met last Sunday, he gave the worshipers time to stand up and share testimonies about their harrowing stories during the air raids. And then the whole church prayed on its knees for their president, their country, and for peace. And then the pastor preached from Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man brings a snare but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Now, what an appropriate text that is. And notice that phrase, whoever trusts in the Lord. Do you know there is something about that preposition in that turns faith into something that's very personal? It's one thing to trust the Lord, and it's a little bit different to trust in the Lord. It's one thing to believe him, but it's a little bit different to believe in him. I've wondered 
For example, off and on through the years, if I wanted to try bungee jumping, maybe some of you have done that. I've watched videos and wondered what that would be like, that thrill, that exhilaration, that moment when you're plunging uh, in a free fall. Well, so far, I've not taken that plunge. But imagine that we visited a professional outfitter, a bungee jumping concern, and the operator showed me the rope, and I inspected it. Do you believe that this rope is safe and sound? I would say, well, yes. Do you believe this harness has integrity? Yes. Will the buckles hold firm? Will the hooks stay attached? Are the operators here people of care and integrity? I could believe all of that. But it doesn't mean that I'm going to get into the harness. It's one thing to believe it, and it's another thing to believe in it and to get into it. It's one thing to trust it. It's another thing to trust in it and to get into it. And that's why I think the writer of Psalms says, the fear, or the right, rather, the writer of Proverbs said, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. We are trusting in the Lord when we buckle in the harness of grace and trust him with the ups and downs of life. Now, the Apostle John is called the Apostle of Belief, but here is something very interesting. You can read the Gospel of John from the first verse and all the way through to the last verse, and you will not find the word faith, at least not if you are using a rather literal translation. John never talked about faith. Now, faith was the favorite word of the Apostle Paul, or at least one of his very favorite words. And we assume that John had read all of Paul's letters, or at least most of them. But John preferred to use a more intimate word, and that was the word believe. Faith is a noun, but believe is a verb. And that was John's term. Leon Morris, in his famous commentary on the Gospel of John, said that the phrase, to believing Jesus quote, is John's favorite construction of genuine trust. He said it's a remarkable thing that the word faith does not occur anywhere in the Gospel of John, but the word believe occurs over 100 times. It's not just the idea of believing, but believing in him. John uses that particular construction repeatedly. So I'd like to trace this word for you in the fourth gospel, actually this phrase for you, beginning with chapter 3, the meeting that Jesus had with Nicodemus one night in Old Jerusalem, because chapter 3 tells us that believing in Jesus brings us eternal life. If you have your Bibles, look at John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, first of all, shall not perish, secondly, shall have eternal life. And two verses later in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, notice all three of those verses contain both a promise and also a warning. If we believe in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. If we don't, we are condemned already, and we will perish, and God's wrath remains on us. 
So believing in Jesus gives us eternal life. In chapter 6, we find that believing in Jesus gives us internal or spiritual or emotional satisfaction. You can choose which of those terms you want. Look at John chapter 6 and verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I simply cannot imagine not being a follower of Christ. Can you? When I wake up in the morning, I grab my Bible and the God of the universe speaks to me. He listens to me when I tell him my concerns. He goes into every day with me. He forgives my shortcoming and helps me to do better. His promises create a mental paradigm in which I can make sense of the world. I can go to bed at night knowing that he is in control. There's a great old hymn that is seldom sung anymore, but it should be, and this is the way I feel about it. In heavenly love abiding, no change my heart shall fear, and safe is such confiding, for nothing changes here. The storm may rage without me, my heart may low be laid, but God is round about me, and can I be dismayed? This is the way that I feel. Jesus satisfies the hunger and the thirst of my heart, and believing in him brings emotional satisfaction. Now, in the next chapter, John chapter 7, we find that believing in him unleashes the Holy Spirit. Look at John 7, verse 37. 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And this, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. This is some of the richest imagery in the Bible. We are told that from the Garden of Eden, which was God's eternal home on this earth, from his very presence four different rivers flowed to water the earth. We're told in Ezekiel 47 that when Jesus reigns in Jerusalem during the millennium, a vast river will flow from beneath the temple to water and to irrigate the desert. We're told in Revelation 22 that when we see the Lord enthroned in New Jerusalem, a river of living waters as clear as crystal will flow from beneath the throne to refresh the entire city and the new earth. And Jesus is using that same imagery here to say that when he is enthroned in our lives, just like from the Garden of Eden, just like from the temple in Jerusalem during the millennium, just like from the throne of God, wherever he is enthroned, rivers of living water flow from beneath him. They will flow from within us to irrigate thirsty souls and make this planet inhabitable from our churches. Ministry flows like rivers of water from you and me. The Holy Spirit flows out and does more good in the lives of others than we can possibly know in the desert of this world. Now, look at John chapter 11. This is where I want to tarry for just a few minutes. It says that believing in Jesus solves the problem of death. Look at verse 25. Jesus said, He's speaking here to Martha. Uh, this is when Lazarus, her brother, had died. She is grieved. But Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Now, there are two sentences here. The first one, I am the resurrection. And the first half of the other one, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. I am the resurrection, and the one who believes in me will never die. And the other sentence, if you take the two parts and you combine it, is I am the life. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. So in the first sentence, Jesus gives himself two names. He is the resurrection and the life. And in the second sentence, he explains the significance of each. He said, I am the resurrection, and he said, I am the life. Then he said, those who believe in me will live even if they die. And then he said, those who live by believing in me will never die. In other words, because he is the resurrection, those who believe in him will live even though they die. And because he is the life, those who live by believing in him will never die. Now, that may sound a little confusing, but let me explain it. The first part of this verse refers to our bodies, for they do fall asleep until the resurrection. And so we do die in the sense of our bodies falling asleep, and they are buried until the resurrection. So I am the resurrection. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. But the last part of this equation has to do with our souls and our spirits, and they never die. The moment we die in Christ, our conscious soul will fly instantly to New Jerusalem and be with our loved ones and with the Lord and with his angels. Jesus said, I'm the life. Those who live by believing in me will never die. I've often been asked, will we be disembodied spirits when we get to heaven or during what we call the intermediate state between death and the resurrection. We know that at the resurrection, our bodies will be raised and glorified and reunited with our spirits. But until then, will we have any kind of body? Or will we simply be disembodied spirits like invisible ghosts floating around as we wait for the resurrection? Well, I am convinced that we are not going to be disembodied spirits floating around intangibly in heaven. Do you realize that angels are spirits? It says so in Hebrews chapter 1. They are incorporeal. They are part of the invisible realm. They are disembodied, as it were, as far as we can tell. But they can project the image of bodies. They can be manifested with bodies. They can somehow assume the form of a body. People who saw angels in the Bible saw angels who appeared as if they were people. In the book of Revelation, we have glimpses of people who are already in heaven. What are they doing? They are singing. They are worshiping. They are dressed in white. They are not intangible, invisible spirits. And on two different occasions in Revelation, and he is speaking here before the resurrection is going to occur when Jesus comes again, but on two different occasions in Revelation, John said that he saw the spirits of those who had perished for Christ during the tribulation, he visually saw them. Now, the tribulation saints who die during the tribulation are not going to be resurrected until after the tribulation, and yet John saw their spirits. This is visual language. Somehow they were manifested in a way that allowed him to see them. 
In the case of the beggar, in Luke chapter 16, the beggar Lazarus, he is walking and talking with Abraham. So some of this is certainly mystery. Most of it is mystery. Uh, it's almost all mystery. But I do believe that God has some interim way to make us known, to allow us to function, to enjoy his fellowship and that of one another. And so our bodies will die in Christ and be resurrected when he comes. But the conscious, real us, our spirit, our soul, our mind, our personality, our internal us will never die. They will go to heaven to await the resurrection of the body, but in between our death and the resurrection, in some way, we will have the temporary appearance, some kind of manifestation of our bodies that may rather be like the angels. And then when the resurrection comes, we will be made totally complete. So Jesus says in John 11 that believing in him gives us this wonderful privilege of avoiding death, of, of solving the problem of death. Now, in the last paragraph of this chapter, we have one additional truth. In John chapter 11, the last paragraph says that believing in Jesus unites us with the condemned man. And this is where I want to spend just a few minutes. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, just turn over to John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. In John 11, Jesus performs the most dramatic miracle of his life. He, uh, the one I was just referring to, he publicly raises Lazarus from the dead, and he does so in the presence of many people and in, in a very dramatic way. According to the four Gospels, Jesus raised three people that we know of back to life. The other two were, well, it was up in Galilee in a much more rural environment, and he performed uh, those miracles with sort of a tender, quiet, compassionate touch, and one of them was totally in private. But here at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus showed up in the aftermath of the funeral. There were a lot of people there. It was near Jerusalem. He shouted in a loud voice, and everything was designed to electrify those who were in attendance. Jesus was deliberately jumping into the headlines, as it were. He was deliberately being provocative towards the authorities. And that brings us to this transitional paragraph that is the pivotal paragraph in the book of John. If you read through the book of John, you can sit down and read through all 21 chapters in a little more than half an hour. And you will find that this one paragraph is the hinge that connects the two parts of John. Now think of it like this with me. John 1 through 11 covers three years. It begins essentially with the baptism, and it goes right up until the last week of our Lord's life. It covers three Passovers. The first 11 chapters cover three years, and it ends with the resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus. Then we have this paragraph, and then we go to chapter 12, and chapters 12 through 21 covers seven days, only seven days. And then it too ends with the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. I do not know of anywhere else in the Bible like this where the pacing changes so dramatically in a narrative. So let me say it again. 
chapters 1 through 11 of John's Gospel cover three years, but when we come to this pivotal, pivotal, uh, pivotal paragraph, everything slows down dramatically. Everything pivots at this point. And after this, the remainder of John covers only seven days. So this paragraph marks a major transition in the Gospel of John, and it marks the point where things turn for the worse in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 45. Therefore, that is, after the resurrection of Lazarus, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. There is our phrase again. Many who saw this miracle believed in Jesus, but what they soon learned was that believing in him united them now with the condemned man. Look at verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called for a meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling council in Israel. It was their parliament or their congress. It was made up of 70 or so men. Some were Pharisees. The Pharisees were more theological conservative in their beliefs. And interestingly, many of them later became followers of Christ. But the leaders of the Sanhedrin were Sadducees who were very liberal in a theological sense, and many of those never reconciled themselves to Christ. Well, at this particular time, with few exceptions, this group of men viewed Jesus as a dangerous fanatic, and as the word spread about his raising a well-known man, Lazarus from the dead, in full view of onlookers, they viewed all of this with alarm. Verse 47, what are we accomplishing, they said. Here's a man performing many signs, that is, many miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now, there's our phrase again. They're, they're, they were afraid that everyone will believe in him. They were afraid that if Jesus continued ministering as he was, especially as his ministry seemed to be moving from Galilee down to Judea, everyone would believe in him, which they feared would destabilize the nation and its tenuous relationship with the occupying Romans. Now, look at verse 49. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, that means that faithful year, that never-to-be-forgotten year, spoke up. Now, we actually know a lot about this high priest named Caiaphas. A few years ago, archaeologists discovered his coffin, or ossuary. I've seen it with my own eyes in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. It bears the name Caiaphas, and according to forensic studies, it contained the bones of a man who died at the age of 60. We believe that we actually have the skeletal remains of Caiaphas and his burial box. Well, Caiaphas, we know not just from the New Testament, but from Josephus and other sources, was just as evil and corrupt as they come. And yet, unbeknownst to him, God gave him a prophetic utterance. Isn't that something? He, would, he, he said something in this chapter that was deeper and wiser than he realized. He said something, the implications of which he did not perceive or understand. Look at verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that fateful year, stood up. You know nothing at all, he said. Do you not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people 
than that the whole nation perish. Now, John has a parenthesis here to explain something. John said in, ver in verse 51 that Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that faithful year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. In other words, God put those words into the mouth of this corrupt high priest, and yet Caiaphas did not realize the implications of his own words. But later, as John thought about it, he realized Caiaphas was saying more than he realized. Verse 53 says, So from that day on they plotted to take his life. The result is that Jesus went into hiding for a few days in a town that was probably about a dozen miles northeast of Jerusalem, a town called Ephraim, which is today the village of Taba. Verse 56 says, Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. There we have the last peaceful, happy, quiet days of Jesus on this earth, as he prepared himself for things to go from bad to worse during the upcoming Jewish Passover. And in the days ahead, all of the followers of Christ found that they were following a condemned man. But there's one last passage I want to show you as we close, and that's in John chapter 14. It says in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Notice that phrase again, believe in me. I've been reading Lee Strobel's new book, The Case for Heaven, and in this book he interviewed Dr. Clay Jones. Dr. Jones is one of the most noted Christian apologists in America. His books and his blog are pretty outspoken, and he is unashamed to present a clear defense of Christianity. Well, here is his story. Dr. Jones was a troubled 12-year-old in Southern California in 1969. He was the son of an atheist and an astrologer, and he was sickly, bullied, and confused. But that year he attended a Billy Graham crusade, and he heard Dr. Graham preach about heaven and hell, and he was converted at age 12. Over time, he became a, deep, a deeply thoughtful Christian, married his high school sweetheart, and he earned a number of academic degrees. <coughs> Excuse me. And he earned a number of academic degrees. One day he began suffering from chronic back pain, and he went to see a doctor. After a number of tests, he received a phone call telling him that he was suffering from an aggressive form of bone cancer that kills all of its victims within two years. Hanging up the phone, Dr. Jones and his wife, Jean, held hands and wept, and they offered a prayer of thanksgiving for all God had done for them, and they told the Lord that he alone was in control, and they prayed for healing if it was his will. Now, this is what Dr. Jones told Lee Strobel about the trauma of those days. He said, this is going to sound strange, but I wasn't afraid of dying. 
Some people scoff when I say that, but it's true. Yes, I mourned leaving my wife. But you see, I had a robust view of heaven. And that's what made all the difference. You know, when I read that sentence in Lee Strobel's book, I put down the book and went over to my desk and got a red ink pen and underlined that sentence, a robust view of heaven. That's what we need. Well, later, thankfully, Dr. Jones received an update that diagnosis was mistaken and not nearly as severe as he had first been told. And, of course, it was a great relief, but Dr. Jones never forgot the lessons he had learned through the crisis. I think, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> I think we all need a robust view of heaven. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? And that comes from believing in him who said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do You know, I memorized those verses in the third grade, and I wish that every child in the world knew these opening verses from John 14. They have given me a lifelong, robust view of heaven. So let's sum up. Believing in Jesus brings us eternal life. It provides us with internal, spiritual, emotional satisfaction. It unleashes the Holy Spirit within us like rivers of living water. It solves the problem of death. It unites us with a condemned man. But it's that condemned man that frees us from condemnation and takes us to heaven who gives us a robust view of the future and who has in preparation for us mansions in eternity. Who would not believe and such a one as Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I don't think I'm ever going to bungee jump, but one thing I know, in the ups and downs of life, the rope of God's grace in Christ will keep me tethered and secure. We have a robust Savior, and in times like these, we need a robust faith and a robust view of eternity. For the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in whoever believes in the Lord dwells in safety. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with me. And please remember to check out my website, robertjmorgan.com, and especially this upcoming book, The 50 Final Events in World History. This episode of the Robert J. Morgan podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing was done by Courtney Warner. Print editing and blog posting by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler. Music is by Elijah Rowe. You can look for the transcript of this podcast on the blog page at my website, robertjmorgan.com, where you will also find many other resources. Thank you for listening, and may God be with you until we meet again.